Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Museums around the country are welcoming visitors this summer with all new unique Native exhibitions. In New Mexico, the Albuquerque Museum's new exhibit examines the controversial legacy of La Malinche, and a museum at Fort Sumner is redone with the Navajo perspective of long walk and imprisonment. And in Washington, D.C., the National Museum of the American Indian offers a virtual exhibit that focuses on stories from indigenous black artists. Your Summer Museum Guide is next, after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Art Hughes, in for Antonio Gonzalez. The recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Castro Huerta case represents an immediate and lasting threat to tribal sovereignty. That's the main message from a virtual roundtable discussion organized by the National Congress of American Indians and the Native American Rights Fund on Thursday. During the discussion, NCAI President Fawn Sharp calls the decision nothing less than a direct attack on the sovereignty of all tribes. At a time we need it the most, and at a time when we worked so hard to secure it, it is the very foundation is now shaken and 200 years unraveled. Among other things, the ruling limits Native jurisdiction over non-Native people who commit crimes on Native land. Native legal experts say it is a departure of more than a century of precedent and practice. Several of the participants highlighted the need for educating elected leaders and the general public on a daily basis about tribes' inherent rights. Muskogee Creek Nation Principal Chief David Hill said it's hard to see any justification for opposing more public safety resources on tribal land or anywhere else. We're going to have to be strategic and smart and understand that this fight may take a long time. But we, Muskogee Creek Nation, are up to the task. Some participants expressed optimism about some positive outcomes from the ruling. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr., said he has mixed feelings about the court's ruling. He said it is a severe blow to tribal sovereignty. But at the same time, the ruling leaves in place the landmark McGirt ruling that says Congress never disestablished reservations in Oklahoma, home of the Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, and many other tribes. Arizona's newly approved record $18 billion state budget also includes a record appropriation for projects on tribal lands. The Arizona Mirror reports the spending plan includes $55 million, mostly for infrastructure projects on the Navajo Nation. The state's three Navajo legislators call the appropriation historic. Nevertheless, Navajo President Jonathan Nez criticized the structure of the funding, giving the state substantial control over how and where the money is spent. He questions whether that adequately recognizes Navajo's sovereign relationship with the state. A coalition of Pacific Northwest tribes is heading to Washington, D.C. this month to call for the removal of dams on the Lower Snake River to bring salmon back to the area. KXLY reports dozens of tribal leaders will attend the event on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. It's part of what's known as the Orca Salmon Project that includes advocacy from tribes in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. The dams are largely responsible for the disappearance of salmon in rivers where they traditionally spawn. The station reports if the dams were breached, it will be the largest dam removal in the world. At their annual meeting, the nation's three Cherokee tribes passed a resolution opposing the state and federal recognition for the Lumbee tribe and a number of other groups. 
The yearly Tri-Council meeting includes the Cherokee Nation, the United Katoa Band of Cherokee Indians, and the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. In addition to mentioning the state-recognized Lumbee tribe, the resolution includes the Chickamauga tribe, the Moa Band of Choctaw, and the Wolf Creek Cherokee tribe as those not worthy of state or federal recognition. The Eastern Band of Cherokee Tribal Council will consider supporting a name change for the highest point in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. WLOS News reports the resolution favors changing the name of Klingman's Dome. The recommended name is Kawahi, a Cherokee word meaning mulberry place. Resolution advocates say it is a sacred place where Cherokees prayed and sought spiritual guidance. They say the current name pays tribute to Thomas Klingman an avowed racist who was a general in the Confederate Army and has no connection to the tribe. With National Native News, I'm Art Hughes. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Amerind, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Amerind.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Museums offer fresh perspectives, artistic inspiration, and deeper understanding of people and history. And when done right, exhibitions can help expand the public's understanding of Native culture, artistic expression, and issues. And museums are frequent destinations for summer travelers. Coming up, we'll be taking you on an audio tour of some new Native exhibits in some selected locations. We'll hear about Indigenous Black Art, La Malinche, the Navajo Long Walk, and the next generation's perspectives. And I know your local community has some choices of its own to offer. What native exhibits are you excited about this summer? Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848, or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got some interesting guests today representing a wide range of native museums and historical sites. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Anya Montiel. She is the curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. She is of Mexican and Tahana Autumn descent. Anya, it's wonderful to talk with you today. Yes, hello there. Great to be with all of you. You bet, Anya. And I know the museum is open to visitors now, but you have a new virtual exhibit that's only accessible online. Tell us more about it. Yes, uh, we have a digital exhibition called Ancestors Know Who We Are. It's right there on our website, AmericanIndian.si.edu. And it really highlights the art by Black Indigenous women artists. And we have artists from many different tribal nations, and they live across the United States. And they also work in diverse mediums such as photography, basketry, poetry, digital art. So it's really a very kind of uh, wide range of artistic mediums. Well, tell us more about some of these featured artists. Uh, Yes. So 
we have six artists, and I would like to highlight um, one in particular. Her name uh, was Roslyn Brown. She passed away during the planning of the exhibition, and she was a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She passed away in 2020, and she was an advocate of Cherokee citizenship for freedmen descendants like herself. She was also a basket maker. So we have one of her baskets, which is made out of flat reed. And since we actually acquired it for our own collection, we were able to um, really show all these wonderful images of the baskets. And since Rosalind passed away, we worked with the Cherokee Nation and we have a video um, that's available on the website where you can learn more about Rosalind. Well, I'm sorry to, to learn about her passing, but it sounds like uh, a virtual exhibit was a good fit for for all of these digital works of art. And tell us more about the inspiration behind the creation of this show. Yeah, so we know that Black and Indigenous peoples have had long interwoven histories in the United States, and especially during the protests following the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, it really highlighted the injustice felt by many in the Black and Indigenous communities. And we saw many Indigenous people joining the protest. And also we saw Black Native artists who were also responding. And at the National Museum of the American Indian, we really want to prioritize Native voice and Native experiences. And so this is just one of the many experiences is people who are our relatives who are Black and Native. And what's been the, the response so far for the exhibit? It has been really wonderful because since uh, it was supposed to be in gallery, but because of the pandemic, we shifted it to just be on our website. So it has been wonderful to see all the various people who have come to the website who are not able to maybe go to our D.C. or our New York locations at this time. Also, um, we have an artist, for example, Moira Pernambuco, who is Indigenous from South America. So that is also, you know, really showing people about how we are also a hemispheric museum. And uh, not only can you see the artwork, we have, as I mentioned, like interviews and sort of video offerings by all the artists. I also invited scholars who are Black and Indigenous to talk about the themes in the exhibition. And we also worked with our accessibility office to make sure that all of our offerings were accessible to our visitors who are blind and who are deaf. Anya, we'll put a link to the Ancestors Know Who We Are exhibit on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. But tell us about other new exhibits at NMI's locations. They're both in D.C. and New York. Yes, we're really happy that we are open to the public. And so we are really ready for people to come back, you know, in our doors. And so in Washington, D.C., you'll see that we have Preston Singletary, Raven in the Box of Daylight. So that's in Washington, D.C. until January the 29th, 2023, which features the work of Clinkett glass artist Preston Singletary. It's also curated by Clinkett Zuni curator Miranda Bellarde Lewis. And then in New York, we are very excited to have two new exhibitions. So we have Dakota Modern, The Art of Oscar Howe, and that is until September the 11th, 2022. And it is a wonderful retrospective on the art of Dakota artist Oscar Howe. And then we also have an ongoing exhibition in New York called Native New York, which is really talking about 12 places in present day New York and talking about really the Native histories 
of the region. And then also lastly, I want to tell people that we are dedicating our Veterans Memorial, our Native American Veterans Memorial, on November the 11th, 2022 in Washington, D.C. Well, Anya, this is all really exciting news, and especially that the museum is open for visitors. People can actually go and, and walk through both museums, see all the exhibits. And is everything up and running? The restaurants, everything, is it all accessible there in person now? Uh, yes, our galleries are all open, and our cafe is open. Our bookshops are open. So, yes, everything is open. Wonderful to hear. Thanks for all that information, Anya, and good luck with uh, all these exhibits going forward. Let's head west now and learn about another interesting Native exhibit from Teresita Romo. She's an independent curator and an affiliate faculty at University of California, Davis. Teresita, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Legacy of La Malinche. Please, Teresita, forgive my ignorance, but I had never heard that name until this week mm -hmm. when my producer sent background for today's show. I know now she was an indigenous woman who played a pivotal role during the Spanish conquest of Mexico. Please tell us more. Yes, as you say, she was an indigenous, actually a young girl, and she was um, alive during the 1500s when the Spanish came to conquer the Aztec Empire. And it's interesting because she is a historical figure, so we know she existed, but she's also very much a mystery in the sense that We've, we've never been able to find out when she was born. We don't know when she died. And as a matter of fact, we don't even really know her, uh, her, her actual, actual given name uh, because Malinche was given to her by the, uh, the uh, people who uh, traveled with Cortez. And then she was baptized and given the name of Marina. So she has all these different names, but we don't know her real name. And she what happened was that the Spanish came to what is now the, the Gulf Coast of Mexico, and she was part of 20 women, and actually young girls, because she was a teenager, scholars say between maybe 11 and 18 years old, and she was part of 20 young women, girls, who were gifted to Cortez. Um, and we know that she was a slave, but we still don't know how she became a slave other than she was from this region of central Mexico, so she spoke Nahuatl. The people who captured her and who gifted her to Cortez spoke a Mayan dialect. And so initially, because Cortez did have a soldier who spoke Maya, since he had been shipwrecked among the Mayas uh, before he got rescued, he was able to translate with the people there. But then when the, Aztec, uh, the Cortez decided to go and meet with Moctezuma to conquer and get the gold, and then obviously curry favor with the king, he ran into peoples who only spoke dialects of Nahuatl, which is what the Aztecs spoke. And so he was told by someone that this young girl spoke Nahuatl as well, because that she had been raised there in that, in that, during that, um, in that area of what is now Mexico. So he, he was able to uh, utilize her talent uh, over the, it took about two years, for the Aztecs to actually uh, bring down the, the empire of the Aztecs. And Malinche was a key player in that because she served as the translator. So she actually spoke for Cortez and then actually spoke for Montezuma, who was the highest emperor, in the, uh, who was the highest person in the empire. And it's interesting because she was very much seen as equal to him because 
he, she was actually relaying the words back and forth between these two very important figures. So Teresita, um, La Malincha, she was a slave. She was an interpreter for Cortez. And I have to ask you, I mean, what was up with these early European colonizers and explorers and young indigenous women? I mean, really, okay, we got Pocahontas, Sacagawea. Now I'm learning about La Malincha. What was going on here? How did these women, or and some might even say girls, find themselves deeply involved in these critical interactions among early Europeans and indigenous peoples? I think um, there are similarities to um, Sacagawea and also Pocahontas in the sense that they're sort of in, in the middle of what's going on in terms of these very important events. But I think with Malinche, um, the interesting um, sort of aspect of her life is that she was a slave within the indigenous people themselves, right? So that's why mm -hmm. she was gifted because she was already property, you know, in the sense of these uh, Mayan um, captors. And so I think it also makes it, her story much more unique in the sense that here's this slave who is actually able to, in a sense, operate outside of what was the norm for a slave person, right, who had no rights and who was property, and able to, as I said before, operate in such a way where not only the, uh, the indigenous people saw her as equal, right, because we have those in the annals, documentation of indigenous people who met her basically seeing her on equal ground with like i said the emperor and uh, cortez okay. and you can see it in the I'm ancient sorry, we're, we're gonna have to go to break and i'm gonna let you go ahead and finish but i'm interested in learning more i, I just think it's odd that these early europeans had it seems almost fixated on some of these young indigenous women 1-800-996-2848 back right after break Tribal leaders and law experts are grappling with the Supreme Court's recent decision to limit tribal criminal jurisdiction and are calling it an attack on tribal sovereignty. The court case from Oklahoma could have far-reaching effects on jurisdiction and governance for all tribes. We'll get more perspectives on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're learning about new Native exhibits at museums today. Does your local museum have a unique collection or display? Call in, join the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking now with Teresita Romo. She's with University of California, Davis, and she's educating us on historical figure from about 500 years ago, an indigenous young woman by the name of La Malinche that found herself uh, right there in the middle of the Spanish conquest of Mexico. Teresita, this exhibit, uh, Traitor Survivor Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche, it's showing right now in Albuquerque, is that correct? Yes, at the Albuquerque Museum, and it's there through um, September 4th. Well, tell us more about the, uh, the exhibit. 
Well, the exhibit is, um, I organized it around uh, five metaphors, and this is, speaks to this aspect of how she was seen and interpreted because we don't have her actual words or how she saw herself and her role. And so very quickly they are the, the one that she's known the most for, which is the interpreter. Um, and then second of all, the, there's another one called um, the indigenous woman. So we look at her and how her indigeneity was also a role that was that played into Mexico's nationalistic narrative, especially later on after the independence in the 1800s. And then mother of a mixed race. Um, a lot of people in Mexico think that she actually bore the first mixed race uh, son. And she didn't, but she still perceived very much in that way. So we explore that as well. And then, of course, the one that's the biggest section is traitor, right? She basically has been seen now, and especially after um, the, the um, independence of Mexico, she transforms into this traitor where people basically see her as the reason, the one and only person responsible for the, the downfall of then what becomes this very illustrious and great civilization, right? And then finally, um, we look at uh, contemporary reclamations. So what are the artworks that reinterpret her and how especially um, women, Chicanas and Mexican feminists have reinterpreted, reclaimed her and have pushed back on all these ne uh, negative uh, interpretations of her. And it's different, like I said, we have codices, we have paintings, sculptures, there's video, um, and then there's um, also um, doc documents that sort of spell out what each of these metaphors are, are trying to convey in terms of how she's been basically, um, I say, used and abused in terms of different agendas, right, that people have put forth in her name. Well, I'm just transfixed by this whole story. I, I, again, it's just all so new to me, so fascinating. Tell us more about some of the artists that are featured in the exhibit. Well, one of the pieces that um, uh, I wanted to sort of highlight was we commissioned Sandy Rodriguez, who's an artist in L.A., and she works a lot with the um, bark paper, which is an ancient material called amate in, in Mexico. And she also researches, um, you know, what the, the handmade paint and na uh, from na uh, native plants and from rocks that are indigenous to those areas that she's depicting. So she depicts in this large Amate painting the eight specific um, events of Malinche's life and, you know, from, the, from where she's born and then also uh, where uh, we know she did pass away, even though, like I said, we don't know when exactly. And it also pushes back on this notion, it's called a Mapa de Malinche, because for the longest time, the conquest was very much defined by the map of Cortez, how he, you know, went from the uh, east to the west to conquer the, the uh, Aztec Empire. So pushes back on that. Plus, she's also um, giving it contemporary relevance because in the painting itself are these red hands, ochre, made from ochre. And these are sites that document where indigenous women have been and are, <clears throat> excuse me, still being trafficked. So it's a powerful piece that ties Malinche's reality, right, as a trafficked girl with the plight of contemporary Native women today. Yeah, that's a that's a, a really good point, and and again, just so 
interesting to learn about and, and how it applies. You mentioned the, the trafficking and some of these issues that we're dealing with today uh, all over the country. And I understand this exhibit, it's, it's a traveling exhibit and it started in Denver. It's in Albuquerque now. So what's the next stop? It's going to the San Antonio Museum of Art and it'll open there um, October 14th and then go through January 8th of next year. And will it after San Antonio? Is there another stop, or is that going to be is that going to be it? No, un unfortunately, that will be um, the end of the exhibition. Um, we we were able to borrow a lot of very fragile pieces, especially like codex, which are 500 years old and very fragile. And so we were able to you know get museums in Mexico um, to let us borrow them, but with the stipulation that they would only be on exhibit for a year. So, um, and then there's some colonial paintings that have to be returned to the churches that they they actually reside in. Um, so with, you know, logistical concerns like that, we were not able to um, book any other site. And the exhibit that is on display now in Albuquerque, is that the exact same exhibit that was displayed earlier in Denver, or have you made some changes? Actually, it, 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 it changed in the sense that Albuquerque, and I was very thrilled when they proposed this, added a section to it. Um, Malicia is also a figure in the Matachines dances that are performed there um, in New Mexico, especially northern New Mexico, by the Indo-Hispanos and also the indigenous people there, the native people. So she's a central figure in that ceremony, that um, performance. And so they added a component to it that talks about that through photography and paintings of local artists. And I think that was very good because, in a sense, if anyone doesn't really know Malinche or has heard of her but doesn't really know that much about her but lives in New Mexico and knows about the Matachines, it'll let them know that they have an entree to the exhibit because they can learn more about her and who she represents, even though they know her within the Matachines dance itself. Okay, well, I'm going to put myself in that category of, of, of New Mexican because I'm certainly familiar with those Matachina dances in the northern pueblos, especially around the holidays. So thank you so much, Resita, for all this information. The exhibit, Trader, Survivor, Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche, on display now in Albuquerque, New Mexico, before it heads on to San Antonio in October. Let's learn now about a historical site with deep significance among the Navajo people. Joining us from Window Rock, Arizona is Manuelito Wheeler. He's the director of the Navajo Nation Museum. He's Diné, of course. We also have Aaron Roth. He's in Fort Sumner, New Mexico, and is the historic site staff manager for the Bosque Redondo Memorial at Fort Sumner Historic Site. Welcome, Manuelito. Welcome, Aaron. Aaron, I want to start with you. Tell us the fascinating story behind the creation of this new exhibit at the memorial in Fort Sumner. Well, good morning, Sean. Um, yeah, this this exhibition, which is now titled Bosque Redondo, A Place of Suffering, A Place of Survival, has literally been over 30 years in the making. I think it's right around 32 years now is kind of when everything, uh, you know, got started as, as far as telling a more truer history about what, you know, basically America's concentration camp was all about. And, you know, there, there was a prior exhibition uh, at this 
at the site that was built basically on the grounds of the old fort. And it, uh, you know, the, one of the original exhibitions, you know, was uh, Fort Sumner, an American concentration camp. And that was opened in 1975. And it was basically pushed out the door. Uh, the visiting public was not ready to receive uh this, this type of information, they said, well, you know, it was it's coming off of World War II, and a lot of people were offended, you know, being likened to, you know, Hitler's Nazi Germany. So it was pushed out the door, and it was, it was replaced with the soldiers, the Indians, and Billy. And it was a highly offensive exhibition, and it was also one of the longest-running exhibitions here at the site. But all of that really began to change. It was June 27, 1990, when this group of uh, Dines students came to visit the site. They had just come from this huge youth conference in Oklahoma City, and so their chaperones were taking them to indigenous sites across the United States on their way back. Uh, is just kind of empowering these these kids. And um, so they visited our site, and they were just appalled by what they saw. I mean, I can tell you, the very first panel that visit, you know, that, that guests would see, referred to you know Navajo and Mescalero Apache people as a plague. So that's that's what really set the tone for what these kids saw. And they left this letter at the site prayer shrine. Um, and it said, you know, we, the young generation of the Diné, were here on June 27, 1990 at 7.30. We find Fort Sumner's historical site discriminating and not telling the true history behind what really happened to our ancestors in 1864 to 1868. It seems to us there is more information on Billy the Kid, which has no significance to the years 1864 to 1868. We therefore declare that this museum show and tell the true history of the Navajos and the United States military. We are a concerned young generation of Navajos for the future. So that letter really started a conversation that there needs to be a space to specifically talk about what happened here when it was a reservation. But, you know, a lot of the the conversations from the state side were happening behind closed doors. Conversations were happening with consultants of the state's choosing. We were cherry-picking representatives. So we went about it entirely the wrong way. It wasn't until it was in late 2015 that we, we actually kind of came to a crossroads. We had exhibit funding. We had the memorial space already established. And do we spend this money on, on an exhibit that nobody wants because – there were several plans that were created, and the last exhibition plan basically had animatronic figures representing tribal leadership that were supposed to tell us about, you know, the, you know, the signing of the treaty and all of these mm-hmm. these horrible representations, and then dioramas representing people's homelands that, you know, basically putting people in a time capsule. So we came to this crossroads and we decided that we were going to start over from the beginning. And through government-to-government relationships, um, a committee was established 
people that were selected by each individual tribal government to represent the people, and they were to sit at the table with us every step of the way. Okay, so and let's, um, really let's where... learn, yeah, and I, I'm curious about learning more about some of this tribal representation, and let's bring Manuelito into the conversation now. Manuelito, when did you first get involved in this Bosque Redondo Memorial? Hi, um, uh, Yate, my name is Manuelito Wheeler. Well, um, you know, even prior to um, Aaron's administration there at the Bosque Redondo Museum or Memorial, you know, there was prior administration at Fort Sumner that reached out and they're like, you know, hey, we, we want um, some input from Navajo people. And uh, they sent me um, their design plans. And, you know, um, that was kind of the last, number one, uh, was, you know, it was limited um, interaction with, with that prior administration. And then um, number two, it's like it was already done. And they were basically asking me to um, edit it or rubber stamp it, you know. And so there was no real um, involvement with, with that. And unfortunately, um, you know, that happens a lot across the country and the world where uh, curators already have their ideas as to what they want to say about Native people, and especially if they're non-Native curators, and they, you know, they'll get a consultant to be a part of their team. Um, to just kind of go along or help support their uh, pre-thought-out um, uh, ideas uh, about Native people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so here comes Aaron and his crew, and they're asking for my, my participation. And, you know, I'm real, I'm real careful about those, those types of projects I get involved with. And so, you know, I really thought, like, you know, this is going to fizzle out. Um, and it didn't, you know. It just kept going, and it kept going, and I, I, I stuck with them every step of the way and you know I'm I've been involved in literally over a hundred exhibits throughout my career and so you know I was I was I was able to help watch out for things that might be an issue or either help the story um, make the points that it need to be made on behalf of Navajo people and, and Native people so it, this this process for this exhibit that it, that turned out is very powerful and is very well done and it looks great. Um, it was it was years in the making and um, throw uh, a pandemic in the middle of, of all of that. So, but um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's our involvement sounds really was intense, but um, it, it, the end result was great. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and Aaron talked about. You know, some so many times Americans we, we they hear about Fort Sumner, of course they think about Billy the Kid and, and some of those old Wild West tales. So has that been challenging there to to change that narrative and educate visitors uh, on on some of this other history and arguably more significant history of that area? I mean, coming from my, I mean, Aaron Aaron has a different. Um, take on it. I mean, I think we're, we're both similar, but Aaron lives and works in the community of Fort Sumner. And, you know, for me as a Navajo person, to be honest, I had no clue that Billy the Kid was from Fort Sumner. You know, that's just kind of a, a Wild West Americana piece of history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the majority of Navajo people, uh, you know, they, we know about Fort Sumner, and we know uh, that it is a a place 
and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because, you know, Navajo people are very, very sensitive as to visiting Fort Sumner. And, you know, um, that was a very um, big thing that was uh, in, in my mind as, as I worked on this. And what I mean by that is there is a portion of Navajo people uh, primarily with the traditional and spiritual beliefs, which, which I have as well, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But there, we're, they and we are of the idea of like... Manuelita, I'm sorry, we're, yeah. we're going to have to go to break, but I, I'm definitely going to give you a lot of time to talk more about some of these issues and, and the culture and tradition there and, and how contemporary Navajo people feel. Listeners, please get in on this conversation. It's important. 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. You're listening to Native American Calling, and we'll be right back. With over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org veterans. AARP supports this program. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're in the middle of our tour of what's new at the Native Museum. Still time to join us. What Native Museum exhibits are you excited to visit this summer? We're at 1-800-996-2848 or 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Manuelito Wheeler. He's in Window Rock, Arizona. He's telling us about the Bosque Redondo Memorial at Fort Sumner. And Manuelito, you were talking before break about a portion of, of the Navajo population that doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't feel it's appropriate to visit uh, this memorial there in Fort Sumner. So please finish, uh, finish your dialogue. Okay, let me uh, finish that point. So, you know, there, there were many things. This is a very, like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a, a 10 in terms of sensitivity uh, and how to handle it and approach it in regards to the topic of the area of Fort Sumner and, and all that happened there with the Navajos and Long Walk and the Long Walk. So there are absolutely uh, people that, Navajo people, that will not go to Fort Sumner because to them it um, is explained that, you know, you're, you're, you're asking for that, um, that wickedness slash evil to, to return. You know, you're asking for it again if you go there. Now, that being said, I'm, I'm traditional and that's my Navajo tradition and, and that's my background. And my grandmother was a uh, practitioner, a traditional practitioner, and she was very highly um, respected in her community. And she comes from the area of uh, Coyote Canyon, New Mexico, which is where Manuelito comes from, hence my name. Um, so she taught my mom, which came to, to teach me that that is an area that we draw strength from traditionally. And we, we need to be strong because mm. of the tragic and um, horrible things that happened. And we need to face those things. So that's, the, that's how, how we approach it traditionally and spiritually. Now, okay. you know, which, which is right and which is wrong, there, there is no right and wrong. If, 
with whatever you feel in, in your heart, I, w- I would say. Right, and, right. You know, and it's been very tough for me to visit this place, but but I do I do it, and yeah, when it's when it's over, I leave, and I think, yeah, I'm I'm stronger, and I, I'm ready to to take on more. Manuelito, thanks for sharing that and your personal perspectives as well. That that really adds a lot of insight into what we're talking about today. We've got a caller, Nicole, listening in Church Rock, New Mexico, on KGLP. Nicole, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Mr. Wheeler. Um, I have a question. What does Bosque Redondo mean? That's number one. Number two, I am currently seeking resolutions from District uh, 16 and for the Nav- Eastern Agency for Navajo Nation to reflect a name change positively for our Navajo people. Uh, do you have any recommendations as, you know, what your insight may be? Man, well, it's a, uh first off, do you know what Bosque Redondo, how that translates into English? And uh, what's the prospect of a possible name change there, Fort Sumner? So <laughs> those are things that Aaron can answer by Bosque Redondo, that's, okay. a, that's Spanish. And <laughs> right, right. Okay. Returning forest or something like that. Returning forest. Okay, let's go to Aaron. Aaron, please translate for us. So... Uh, just the name it, it it was it was named for this this crossing um, you know in it, it basically translates to round wooded area it's not just like the trees themselves but it's also like the grasses and the small shrubs but it was this particular crossing of the Pecos River um, that it was the reason why it was named that so this grove of, of cottonwood trees uh, is where the fort and what was recognized as the reservation was situated. Mm. Okay. What about the possibility of, of a name change there? We're seeing that so much. In fact, on the news just before the show, uh, a site in North Carolina, uh, a tribe is looking to change that to an indigenous name. What do you think? Is it possible? Is it important? Well, I mean... I think that's identifying who is here. And we do recognize that this is the western border of the the Comanche lands. And also this is kind of the northern tip of where and it was an encampment for the for the Endet people as well, the Mescalero Apache. So this was an area that was frequented by several different peoples. So um that that topic has come up in conversation mm. before about who who was here and how we can recognize that yeah that's something certainly to consider that there are other tribal nations that that have a vested interest in, in that part of the country so this is a, a memorial and, and a new exhibit there at Bosque Redondo in Fort Sumner New Mexico really really interesting discussion and and just a lot of layers a lot of layers to this issue there in fort sumner and of course all relating back to the long walk of of the navajos and their internment there at fort sumner for uh for a significant period of time let's uh go to santa fe new mexico now we have tony cheveria he's a curator at the museum of indian arts and culture he's santa clara pueblo tony great to have you on the show 
Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me part of this uh, pretty interesting program. Yes, absolutely. And there's been a reimagining of a permanent exhibit at your museum in Santa Fe. Tell us what's changed. Sure, yeah. We've completely um, redesigned our permanent exhibition uh, here, now, and always, which is to basically give uh, uh, present the voices of people, the Native people in the Southwest. And it's been completely redesigned uh, top to bottom and about, oh, I would say uh, 90% new material as well. So what was the inspiration for, for making the changes there? Was it just kind of out of date? Well, yeah, you know, there, uh, there are many, um, like these o- older uh, Native uh, exhibits on, on culture, on the Native cultures, you know, in, in North America at these, you know, uh, large and mid-sized museums. And some of them, you know, are like, you know, 50, 60 years old, and they're horribly out of date, and they're often based on collections that are, uh, or, you know, were collected pre-1940, even sometimes pre-1900. So it really presents Native people in a, uh, you know, locked in a certain, you know, like, time time uh, period, which uh, just, you know, isn't um, uh, accurate of how actually, what you know, that Native people are still here and they're still thriving. So the Here Now and Always was, again, to as an attempt to present that, of that story starting from the very distant past to the present day. And again, though, when you uh, start something, when it first opened, you know, now that is, uh, gosh, uh, over like 20, 25 years ago, and you have a whole new generation of people who have, you know, have been, you know, contributing, been doing things for their tribes, who have been just been part of the mix. And there were people who were very young children when the first version of Here Now and Always opened who have PhDs now and were um, a consultant on the exhibition. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, important to you know, be able to, to provide this new generation of voice. Here Now and Always, that's the name of the exhibit in Santa Fe. And we're going to talk more with Tony about the exhibit and, and some of the people involved in this major upgrade. But right now, we've got another caller, Steve. He's an OK Owinge, OK Owinge Pueblo. He's listening on KUNM. Steve, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing today? Sengitsamo. Sengitsamo. Lomatalava. Um, yes, uh, thank you for having me. Um, we're very proud to be collaborating with the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture for a major event on August 6th and 7th. And the event is titled the Nakoda Lawrence Youth Hoop Dance Championship. But in the theme of their, their exhibition here now and always, uh, what we're doing on the weekend uh, of August 6th and 7th is having a competition for young Native hoop dancers uh, to participate in this event. And it's part of a, a kind of like a, a memorial and uh, also uh, to carry on the legacy and passion of Nakoda Lawrence, who is very uh uh, who has who has dedicated his life to empowering Native youth through cultural programming, particularly the Native American hoop dance. So we're proud to be collaborating with the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture uh, on the weekend of August 6th and 7th, where we will have the Nakola Lorat's Youth Hoop Dance Championship. So we wanted to okay. invite everybody to and, uh, participate and enjoy the dancing of our young Native dancers. Steve, thanks for that information. Hoop dancing coming up in August in, in Santa Fe. 
Oh boy, hoop dancing. That always gets people excited for sure. Tony, the exciting stuff going on. Steve sharing uh, this event coming up in, in August and, of course, this upgrade to the Here, Now, and Always exhibit. Tell us more about some of the people involved in, in this upgrade that you have that's occurred. Yeah. So uh, among, besides myself, uh, there are other uh, individuals involved in the, uh, in the staff people, uh, curators, um, even our, our uh, uh, archivist, uh, Diane Bird from uh, Kiwa Pueblo, has also curated a, a section as well, uh, survival and resilience. And but but in addition to that, there were also at least one or two um, uh, community co-curators. And then within the, each of those uh, sections, we have there are between like uh, two to seven um, community consultants as well. The the exhibit's kind of like a broken down into these different thematic sections. That there is a you start with an emergence section which was from the first exhibit, but it's been completely redesigned. Mm -hmm. uh, are you there, Tony? I think I might have just lost you. Yep, I think we lost Tony. Anya, I, you uh -oh. know, listening to... Tony, are you back? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. You just kind of cut oh. out there for a minute. So oh, you sorry. tell us about some of the... No, no worries. Um, yeah. Well, what's been the feedback from, from visitors there to the museum? What do they think of the, the upgrades? Oh, they, they are, they're enjoying it very much so. Uh, we had the big public opening just this past weekend, and then uh, we got a lot of feedback, um, different things, you know, that we can make it even better. And that's always important because with an exhibit, you really don't get a chance to do a test flight. You know, it's really until you get people in there who haven't been in there before that you know, like, how do, how do things work, um, which directions are, are they going to, things like that. And But, yeah, it's been overall been very, very positive. And what other uh, exhibits, what other displays do you have there at the museum in Santa Fe that might interest some of our listeners? Oh, yeah. So we have painted reflections is basically looking at ancestral Pueblo pottery and how um, the, the, they incorporated these optical illusions in them. And then coming up is another huge show. We often don't do these back to back, but kind of the 2022 phenomenon, you know, that Grounded in Clay opens up here um, uh, July 31st is the public opening, and that is a, we are the opening a venue for a traveling exhibition developed by the School for Advanced Research and the Vilcek Foundation, and that is basically, um, it's over 60 uh, different uh, public voices that are, uh, that are curating the show, and they are, uh, basically it's going to be a, an art exhibit, native art exhibit, unlike any other, because it's, is incorporating so much voice and their perspective that it's it's really unique, I think, in many exhibits that I've ever seen on Native Art. Grounded in Clay, that is the name of the exhibit there in Santa Fe. And I want to ask Anya, Anya, Tony's talking about this this reimagined, this updated exhibit, and it makes me wonder, how often do museum exhibits need to be reimagined or updated? Is there a general timeline for an exhibit's lifespan? Well, I think especially when you do have maybe a very kind of like broad, general, permanent gallery, you know, it's always a good idea to go through and see if maybe some of the artworks need to be rotated for new ones or if maybe there are some stories that have been left out. So I know that um, 
for example, at the National Museum of the American Indian, we opened with an orientation video in 2004. And so now we are going to redo that orientation video. So that's something that as well, you know, we're always kind of thinking of like, what was our mindset when we were trying to open the museum in 2004? But then what are some different voices that maybe we didn't think about, or maybe there's other parts about our museum that we want to highlight. So it's, it's always a good idea, you know, and especially when you come to history exhibitions, um, sometimes, you know, people didn't always include the voices of everyone or maybe, you know, thinking about how um, it could be more about the younger generation and how they're viewing it. Well, here we are. It's July. There's still a lot of summer left. I think a lot of our listeners are, are, are really excited now to go out and, and check out some of these museums. Anya, what do you think folks should should really think about when they visit a Native museum this summer? Now that the pandemic hopefully is is past us and we're moving on, what do you want folks to understand about these Native museums all over Indian country and Native America? I would love people to understand that, you know, we're all working together, really. You know, that's how I view it is that, you know, I do have friends, you know, at the Idle Jorg and, you know, at the Gorman Museum at UC Davis, you know, so it's like we all know each other and we all want our visitors to really know that we are, you know, planning these exhibitions. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than we hoped, you know, with like, for example, the Bosque Redondo, like sometimes it takes a while, you know, to really, you know, make sure that these exhibits are, um, you know, doing everything that we want them to do. And, you know, just to let people know that, um, you know, if you do have suggestions to let us know, if there's also ideas for programming, you know, some things that maybe people, um, we love to hear from our visitors and just know more, uh, maybe ideas that they have for us. It's about that time. We're going to have to wrap this conversation up now. But before we do, I want to thank our guests, Anya Montiel, Teresita Romo, Manuelito Wheeler, Aaron Roth, and Tony Chavaria. Appreciate y'all coming on the show and keeping us up to date with all the latest Native Museum exhibits this summer. Join us next week on Native America Calling. We're doing it again with a whole new lineup of discussions about Native issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. We had help this week from Roman Garcia. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. Hey, hey. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.